Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. It is Tuesday, February 23rd, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and I am so excited. Why, I don't know, but I just am. It is so wonderful today. So what we're going to talk today about is the deadliest place in the hospital. Yes. Where is that place? It's the emergency room. Yes, the emergency room. Now, everyone's got their theories about why the emergency room is so deadly. Some of you out there might actually think it's because sick people go to the emergency room. Maybe people who go to the emergency room are sicker. That does not appear to be the case. Maybe people who are admitted to the emergency room are sicker than other patients. No, that doesn't seem to be the case either. So what I'm going to do tonight is go over the statistics, the information we have, from across the medical industrial complex itself, they do the research, I don't, I just interpret, uh, and see what we can tease out about why the emergency room is such a dangerous place. And then we're going to talk about how you can mitigate these dangers. Remember, I actually worked as an emergency room doctor for a few years, and part of going to medical school is doing an emergency room rotation. And part of residency training, as a family practice physician, is spending time in the emergency room. So, I have a bit different perspective than those who do research and uh, look at numbers. So, let's take a look. I had to go all the way to the Nursing Journal to find this. It's called OJIN, Online Journal of Issues in Nursing. And this is a 2015 issue. It's number two, May 2015, and it says, Harm in the emergency department. And ethical drivers for change. This person seems to think that things can be improved. And she starts out with some statistics, which you've heard from me before. And she says, in 1999, the Institute of Medicine reported hospital errors were responsible for 99,000 deaths per year. Well, let's just leave out the word errors here. I just say hospital care was responsible for 99,000 deaths per year. I mean, that's more death than homicide and AIDS combined. And these are two things that many people spend a substantial amount of their life trying to avoid. That's 1999, fifth leading cause of death. And they said today, despite development of a robust patient safety movement fueled by the IOM report, hospitalization is the third leading cause of death. Now, again, this is hospitalization, so they're only counting hospitalized uh, killings. Third leading cause of death, accounting for upwards of 400,000 preventable deaths per year. This is in 2013. So in 2013, they managed to count as high as 400,000 deaths. It's 2016, and I still maintain the 880,000 number. However, 400,000 deaths per year just from healthcare, it seems to me a high enough number to get somebody's attention. I mean, like maybe your attention. 
So consider that it would be it would take two 747 jumbo jets crashing every day to approach the number of annual deaths attributed to hospital medical errors. Say nothing of how many 911s it would take, right? It would take at least, well, 100 911s. 100 9/11 would have to happen 100 times in a year, just to account for the 400,000 deaths that occur every year in hospitals. So, for all the attention 9/11 is getting, deaths in hospitals should be getting about 100 times more attention if our attention was proportional to the reality of the risk. And so, of course, this person says the reasons are complicated. But let's get to the emergency department. Emergency department utilization continues to outpace population growth. What does that mean? That means the per capita use of the hospital emergency room is growing. So the growth in the use of emergency departments is not just due to increases in population. So since 1999, seems to be her baseline year, and that's good, but this has risen from 103 million to 130 million. That's a 30% increase. And they're saying the Affordable Health Care Act is implemented. We expect more people to obtain insurance coverage. It's likely there will be even higher emergency room volumes. Wait, time out, back up, back up, back up. Weren't we told that if everyone had, had insurance, they wouldn't be going to the emergency room, that they would be going to a private doctor? That was the whole rationale for the Affordable Care Act. And so now we hear, because of affordable care, people, more people are going to go to the emergency room. Okay. We're going to accept that at face value. We're not going to question that. And it's likely there will be even higher emergency room volumes, emergency department crowding, and the resulting long wait times are a predictable and common condition across a wide range of hospital types. And this is the punchline. The emergency room waiting room is sometimes referred to in the popular press as the most dangerous room slash place in the hospital because some patients suffer harm due to long emergency room wait times. Now, there is a lot of questions as to why people might be harmed during their wait in the emergency room. And I've seen this from many perspectives. One, being the actual doctor in the emergency room. Two, being the attending who actually admits patients to the hospital, either from my office or from the emergency room. And the third perspective, being the anxious, pissed-off relative of an elderly person who I have walked to the emergency room. And when I had that experience, I vowed to myself, never again, I'm not doing this anymore. So those three perspectives, I think, give some pretty good insight into why the death rate in the emergency room is so high. And we're going to have even more insights from the numbers that have been uh, amassed as they've measured and, and tried to quantify this problem. And so the person writing this uh, has worked with two hospital emergency departments, quality improvement collaboratives, and has facilitated the implementation of strategies that reduce the uh, LBBS rate. So let's uh, go back here. And the LBBS rate is the boarding time, the time it takes to admit somebody uh, from the emergency room. This can be devastating, and we'll talk about why. So while specific strategies were important, it was crucial that the emergency department leadership and clinicians were willing to reimagine the way in which the emergency department did business. Now, this falsely assumes that the emergency department leadership, well, leadership and clinicians have anything to do with imagining how business is done. In other words, the doctors in the emergency room have often very little, almost nothing, to say about the way business is done in the emergency department. The emergency department leadership is a euphemism for hospital administration, which usually has everything to do with how business is run in the emergency department. And, and so she's talked about the uh, 
different technical issues, but ethical principles calling for system change. So beneficence, that means kindness, is an obligation to assist others in their pursuit of important and legitimate interests. And to identify and remove possible harms that may deter these uh, pursuits. And so beneficence is most frequently associated with individual actors. Now, this is a huge clue that the health insurance, the health industry is one big act, one big play, and you participate and take your role as patient at your own risk. So she subconsciously let it slip that this is one big act. And so it's the nurse acting with beneficence while caring for a patient. It applies to groups as well, like the state government, acting with beneficence when requiring immunizations to prevent the spread of disease throughout the population. Hospital administrators and emergency department leaders and providers are not acting with beneficence when they allow excessive waiting times as a predictable occurrence in their emergency departments. Now, that she considers coercing or forcing someone to do anything in active beneficence, you know, there's a kind of tells you everything. Okay, so she kind of, uh, that's really all she adds that's important. But the, but the takeaway message here is even by the medical industrial complex's own count, as of 2013, they had already counted over 400,000 deaths per year. Now, let's take a look at uh, what's going on. And she also talks about boarding time. And those of you who are computer internet savvy, boarding time or boarding is a technical computer term used for getting your data transferred from wherever you are to the cloud. You're said to be boarded or brought on board as a customer. And so to basically use this terminology of data transfer as an analogy as to how you should care for people is also very telling. So each person then becomes a, uh, a packet of information. And so the, the problem here is that people who come to the emergency room are not really uh, considered uh, human. Now here we have another piece of information. Increasing Medicaid coverage increases emergency room use by 40%. This is important, it's important to know. So why is emergency room use increasing by 40% when you increase Medicaid coverage? Well, one reason, of course, and this article is in the Fiscal Times, Unintended Consequences of Expanding Medicaid, it shows a bottle pill filling open only a $100 bill. So, of course, the increased access to prescription drugs causes the side effects, which then drive people to the emergency room due to the side effects of these drugs. So this, is, this is pretty clear uh, what's going on. It's actually straightforward. <coughs> so, what they're saying here is there's a lot of an axiom of policy experts that healthcare costs could be substantially reduced if poor people received adequate health insurance and no longer had to use hospital emergency rooms as their chief source of primary care. So what do you do? You create more Medicaid beneficiaries. And what happens? It's just the opposite. So according to one estimate, more than $18 billion could be saved annually if patients with routine or non-urgent medical problems turn to private physicians or preventable healthcare facilities to treat them instead of pricey emergency rooms. Yet, a new study, this is January 2014, a new study of the impact of Oregon's expanded Medicaid coverage of the poor raises serious doubts about that assumption. The report by a distinguished panel of academic and healthcare experts published in the Journal of Science, we're not going to argue with scientific research, found that extending Medicaid health insurance to uninsured low-income adults actually increased the use of hospital emergency services. According to the findings, overall emergency room in Oregon increased by 0.41 visits per person. That's a lot of uh, increased visits. And you think that people like me and my kids went years to zero visits. So relative to an average of 1.02 visits per person in the control group. So 
increases in emergency department visits across a broad range of types of visits, conditions, and subgroups for conditions that may be most readily treatable in primary care settings, the study stated. So the point here is more insurance and more care begets more care. And this is a statistic of the medical industrial complex itself, that for every dollar in medication a human being consumes, they will consume three times that amount in health care expenses, we call it medical industrial complex services, to treat the side effects of that medication. So any maneuver that makes prescription drugs more readily available, as the Medicaid program does because it covers prescription drugs for the most part, is going to explode or increase healthcare costs. And this is what we see. Medicaid coverage increases emergency from use by 40%. So what's going on? What happens when someone comes to the emergency room? They're distraught. They're suffering. And they're made to wait in some cases, five hours, in some cases, three days, a long time before they're admitted to the hospital. Well, most people, when they come to the emergency room, they expect to be taken care of. They don't bring a picnic lunch. Right, they don't bring a picnic lunch. This means that you have someone who maybe came to the emergency room mildly dehydrated, and the dehydration deepens. It gets worse and worse and worse while they are waiting in the emergency room. So literally, the weight itself worsens their condition. That's one thing. The next thing that happens in emergency, that's the perspective of me just watching. I, I brought my mother to the emergency room. She was having vomiting and she couldn't eat. And so it's clear that the fluids are going in a definite wrong direction. So go to the emergency room. Mom hasn't eaten now in about a day and a half. She's uh, throwing up. She wants little sips of water. And I didn't have a license at the time, so I couldn't just submit her to the, the hospital and write a set of orders, put her in a bed, and get an IV hookup. So we were in that emergency room way past my bedtime, and we showed up. You know the day. I would say 10 o'clock in the morning. And by 8 p.m., mom did not have any treatment for her dehydration. And of course, she was getting drier and drier and drier. And finally, I said, look, here's the deal. All she needs is some salt water. Talk about how they use salt water. Pop off her tank, and we can go home. No, Dr. Daniels, I'm sorry. We have to wait for, we have to wait for the dough. He'll be here any minute now. And so it was just one uh, very unsatisfying experience throughout the whole hospital. So, of course, they couldn't get their brain around the fact that she was simply dehydrated. Once they'd hydrate her, they looked for more reasons to keep her. Well, if you found an ulcer in your way, well, it's not serious, but well, let's stay another couple of days. Like, what? We're out of here. Of course, Mom couldn't, wasn't hearing any of that, so I had to say, okay, Mom, I'm going to take you to the local alternative practitioner. He's going to mumble a few words, stick in a few acupuncture needles. Whatever he wants to do, we'll submit to. And we're going to tell these guys that we're going on to another stage of care. She said, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then I was able to finally get him out of the hospital after four days two of which she didn't need. But this is what happens in the hospital emergency room. Dehydration sets in. And most people are coming to the hospital, even though they might not have nausea or vomiting, maybe they just have a mild chest pain. Um, maybe they have abdominal pain. Maybe they have a gallbladder issue. All of these are at the, at the root caused by dehydration. And when you make a person sit there, with nothing to drink, and you don't even order an IV, and no diet is written by the doctor, and everyone's conditioned to wait until we have permission to do anything, like eat, um, you have a bad, a bad situation, a bad situation. So you have, and this is why people have heart attacks in the emergency room, because they come in mildly dehydrated, they receive no fluid water waiting, and Dehydration deepens, 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 and boom, they have a heart attack. And so the, the problem here is we have a high rate of hospital deaths. 
Now, of course, the good news is uh, since 2010, household deaths decreased by 7%, but increased by 17% in a diagnostic category called septicemia. You guys might recognize that as MRSA, the hospital-resistant bug. Now, the 7% decrease, not so fast. Those people were just shunted off to hospice before they actually expired. Um, and of course, 1.5% of Medicare beneficiaries every year experience an event that contributes to their death. This is by Dr. Levinson, 1.5% of Medicare beneficiaries, which projects to 15,000 individuals a single month, 180,000 in a year. This Medicare beneficiary who died as a result of care they received in the hospital. Care made possible by uh, Medicare. Now, the problem here, too, is that number of emergency room visits is 136 million. And already for department visits per 100 people, it's 44.5. In other words, almost half of all individuals in the United States go to the emergency room every year. And 16.2 million of these visits result in hospital admissions. And so that's a, that's a hefty uh, chunk of change. So that's about uh, 10% of people come to the room are going to get admitted, a little more than 10%. And number of emergency department visits resulting in admission to critical care, 2.1 million. 2.1 million visits result in admission to critical care. And so the percentage of hospital deaths for those under age 65 has increased 9% from the year 2000 to the year 2010. So if you're young, under 65, and you go to the hospital, your chances of dying are actually increased. While the force of inpatient hospital deaths for those age 65 and over decreased 3%. And so, you know, it almost sounds like you're going to kill somebody. No. Now, the chance of, so the number of discharges, 35.1 million, 2% of patients admitted to the hospital, average length of stay is 4.8 days, and discharge per, per 10,000 population is 1,139, which is what we figured, 10% uh, of the population. So, put it in a way, being outside the hospital, the average death rate is 0 0.008, or eight-tenths of a percent per 365 days versus 0.02% or 0.02, which is 2% per 4.8 days. So 2% chance of death every 4.8 days in the hospital. That means a person is 205 times more likely to die in the hospital than outside the hospital on any given day. So... This is this is a this is a lot. And if you're old, 65 or older, we know 32 percent of hospital deaths are due to hospital therapy. This is a number in the old books. A third of all your hospital deaths are due to hospital therapy. So at least you're 67 times more likely to die of hospital therapy if you're 65 than you are likely to die outside the hospital on any given day. And this suggests that hospitals are pretty dangerous places. You can almost call them death mills. And if you calculate percentages, you're you know, into that kind of thing. A whole year's worth of laying in a hospital bed consecutive days, you have a 150% chance of dying. That kind of tells the story right there. So this is a big reason to avoid the emergency room. But there's even a bigger reason to avoid the emergency room. This is released... Uh, www.facefacts.usa.org. Uh, and this uh, organization is just really concerned about cost. And they, they don't even really understand, I don't think, the information they're giving about the dangers. So the cost of average American hospital stay nearly doubled from 2000 to 2010, while the average stay length declined. So hospitals managed to squeeze twice as much money out of a shorter hospital stay. 
So a decade was a period of low inflation, which means prices were not rising. But some sectors of the economy didn't get the memo. So changes charges for hospitalization soared from the average 17,000 in the year 2000 to 33,000 in the year 2010. And so now let's take a look at the cost of the intensive care unit. So in 2011, 26.9% of hospital stays involved intensive care unit charges. 26% of hospital stays. And a, and a stay involving a day in the intensive care unit is on average 2.5 times the average hospital stay. So 2.5 times 33,000 is more or less 82,000. And 5.9% of all hospital admissions come to the intensive care unit through the emergency room. So, I see admissions 5.9% of hospital admissions times 2.5% or 14.5% of revenue in an industry with a profit margin of 5%. So, the emergency room generates 15% of the hospital revenue due to its responsibility for intensive care unit admissions. So the emergency room to intensive care unit connection, without that connection, most hospitals would close. Now, combined with this statement, this is another piece of the statement uh, from another source. From 2002 to 2009, intensive care unit stays rose at three times the rate of general hospital stays without an increase in severity of illness. So three times as many people are going to intensive care units as before, yet the severity of illness is not increased. In other words, the intensive care unit stays are being padded. Yes. So when someone comes to the emergency room, if they get put in the intensive care unit, their bill goes up from 33000 to 82,000, and in 66% of cases, that person would not have been put in the emergency room in the year 2002, and there would be no negative health consequences of not putting them there. In other words, use of the, of the intensive care unit is being increased via the emergency room to support hospital revenue. If you've been to the intensive care unit, that's about as deadly as the emergency room. But first, let's just talk about the emergency room from perspective of being an emergency room doctor. So when I was in the emergency room, as an emergency room doctor, I would do the rural emergency rooms where I would work 24-hour shifts. Those emergency rooms were not so busy, and I actually got a lot of sleep. However, when someone came to the emergency room, and there's a question, should they be admitted or not? Mm-hmm. We were encouraged to lean on the side of admission. And not only that, when you call up the specialist, you say, you know, this patient emergency room, and uh, I think you should come in and take a look at them and give them your blessing or whatever. What the doctor would say is, I don't feel like coming in. Why don't you go ahead and admit him and I'll see him in the morning? And so here you have a person coming to the emergency room. In their mind, they come into the emergency room to get treatment, uh, to somehow be helped, to somehow be improved, or, or to improve their health, or to feel better. I mean, it's my sincere belief that most people go to the emergency room for that reason. And instead, they get caught up in this system that has nothing to do with their health. So that doctor's decision to admit that patient only had to do with that doctor's decision to get to a three hours more sleep. Not only that, but he probably had a lot of other pressures. Uh, like he probably received a couple of phone calls from the hospital administration saying, hey, you need to admit more patients. So there's all this back drama going on that the patient's totally aware of. When you show up in the emergency room, that's what you're walking into. You're walking into the emergency room doctor's desire to check with another doctor before he sends you home. If you are dealing with that second doctor's desire, to have enough admissions to keep up his privileges and to get hospital administration off his back 
or maybe he has more bills to pay. Who knows what the determining is? But you'll have a person who presents with whatever symptom, let's call it indigestion, who gets admitted for their hospital stay, $33,000. You're under Obamacare, right? 20% copay, $6,000 right off the person's pocket. And then you get a deductible, $100,000, so $7,000, boom, evaporated. That's Disney money. That's a family vacation. But this is what happens when you go to emergency. You get pillaged, sucked in. And you're in a position where you're, you're, you're powerless. What are you going to do? If you knew how to solve the problem, or knew what it was, or knew it wasn't anything, you wouldn't have shown up to the emergency room. So patients are put in these types of uh, positions when they show up in an emergency room. They're just caught up. Uh, in this web. And the emergency room, I'll tell you right now, for pretty much every hospital is a money loser. It is a money loser. If the emergency room didn't generate this 15% revenue of the hospital via the intensive care unit, it shut it down. It wouldn't exist. And in case you need other information about how in admissions to the emergency room through the emergency room are going up and severity of illness is going down. Uh, here it is, New York Times. I mean, if that's not reliable, what is? And if they don't support the medical industrial complex, who does? So what do they say? Emergency rooms account for half the nation's hospital admissions. And virtually all of the rise in admissions between 2003 and 2009. These are discretionary admissions. Admitting people to the emergency room is literally like printing money, especially when they have insurance. And you have the CFO in the background working with the IT, information technology specialist, to write the program where they can, when they swipe your insurance card, boom. Up on the screen comes everything your insurance will pay for based on what you've complained about that evening. And if hospitalization is one of them, guess what you're going to get? Yes, you're going to get a hospitalization. Now, the other thing they found that although the admissions accounted for half, so emergency admissions account for half of all the nation's hospital admissions, but when you add all the revenue from those admissions, it only accounted for a third of hospital revenues. So that means is those patients admitted from the emergency room were categorically less sick than other patients admitted either directly from the doctor's office or even scheduled admissions. And that's a pretty heavy, uh, a pretty heavy indictment because you would expect an emergency room patient admitted to the hospital to be sicker and to require a greater intensity of services. That is not what's happened. What is happening here is the very thing they accuse patients of, which is um, excessively demanding medical services by going to the emergency room. That's not what's happening. What's happening is the hospitals are excessively admitting people through the emergency room to bolster their revenue. And a lot of these patients, the reason why the hospital, the emergency room with half of admissions going a third of the revenue, is a lot of the folks wake up in the morning and say, what am I doing here? They get on their clothes and leave. So if we look at the statistic, which is half of all admissions come to the emergency room and a third of the revenue, then we can see that these people coming to the emergency room are not especially ill. And we counterfeitly this with the fact that three times the percentage of ER visitors are admitted to the intensive care unit, even though the basic level of illness has not changed, has not increased. And so obviously, there's a lot of discretionary admitting there going on, not because of the patient's condition, but because of the administrative framework that doctors find themselves in and the economic reality of the hospital. Now, again, this means that you're being seriously fleeced because what's happening is what could be a $1,000 emergency room visit, which would be that enough, turns into a $33,000 hospital stay, or even worse, an $82,000 patient 
passed through the uh, intensive period. So you can see then that the emergency room is a loss leader for the rest of the hospital. Now, some hospitals don't have emergency rooms. Those hospitals have a very strong relationship with their, their medical staff, and they have other ways of bolstering their revenue, which, again, is beyond the scope of today's talk. Okay, so what happens then is, for this reason, you cannot expect an emergency room to address your health care needs or to make an impartial assessment of your medical condition. It's not going to happen in the emergency room, not, not at all. And this is what you need to be aware of. Now, what else is there? Okay, so as a resident, I would work, I would do a rotation in the intensive care unit. And of course, as a resident, that's what says, a resident is a doctor who's finished medical school but is not yet licensed. Oh, actually, he may be licensed, but he's doing additional training beyond medical school. So in my case, that will be uh, my first year training. And so part of my job, a big part of my job, is to do the things that nobody else wants to do. And so I'm still in the, in the intensive care unit one day, and I was told, Dr. Dennis, this person needs an arterial line. Look at the person that looks pretty healthy to me. I said, well, why does this person need an arterial line? He says, well, you need practice putting one in. I said, well, in addition to that, is there any reason why this person needs an arterial line? Yes, this person needs an arterial line so you can monitor their blood pressure without having to constantly use a blood pressure cuff. And I said, oh. Now, that's pretty invasive to cut a hole in hurry uh, and put a catheter in there to measure pressure just so no one has to get a blood pressure cuff out and measure it. And this catheter, of course, is a source of infection. And so you have people in the intensive care unit, and they're being monitored by machines. And so for those of us who are not familiar with the intensive care unit, we think to ourselves, oh, yeah, being monitored by machines. We think of uh, Leonard Nimoy um, on Star Trek, passing transducer over the body, huh, you wish. Most of those machines are connected to that body by a needle or a hole in some orifice. So literally this person's skin is broken, is violated by that machine in order for the machine to get the information, whatever the information might be. And so each one of these holes in this person's body is an opening for infection, is a second slide to six or and so the invasive. What's another reason not to go to the emergency room? Another reason not to go to the emergency room is so when you go there the bill is going to be inflated. It's going to be just exploded beyond beyond belief. So you have a doctor that you're going to go see, a doctor you've never, never seen before probably. And this doctor's going to say, oh, let me order this test just to cover myself, whatever that might mean. Let me order three or four more tests and then a few more x-ray tests and so on. And so it's an opportunity then for the hospital to get more revenue from the radiology department and from various uh, testing departments. So you have this, this emergency room doctor who's programmed his default setting is to order far more tests than say a doctor in an office setting might order. Outcomes, no, certainly no better, we're just not even gonna suggest it might be worse. So. The therapy that you receive then, the doctor that you go to see is going to say, hmm, there's really not much wrong with this person. They don't want to make them feel ridiculous for coming. So I'm going to write a prescription that's at least a $200 prescription. A doctor's actually think this, and actually think this, that if you come to the emergency room and you're worried and upset, and like, oh, I better do a lot of stuff then to address their worried and upsetness, or I'm going to just say, hey, you know, I've seen this a few times. This is what I think it is. 
Here's what we can do for you. Here, do this, get some relief. And uh, I hope you get better and things get better with you. Uh, that's not that's not the script. It's not the script. The script is, oh my gosh, you have terrible pain. Yes, it's very bad pain. Oh, we can't just uh, wait this out, or we can't give you an, uh, an antacid. Oh God, no. We've got to go to surgery. We've got to go to surgery. Look for it just to look, just to look, just to look. And this is the kind of predatory reception most people get in the emergency room. And that's what these statistics bear out. Is the more emergency rooms that you have, the more admissions you have, even though the number of people who need to be admitted by if measured by intensity of illness doesn't that increase. We have more people being admitted the emergency, through the emergency room and more bills being generated. Now, so we've got this financial policing going on. And what creates this is when you hand them your health care card, that's like handing over a credit card. I mean, if people realize that, that your health insurance card is like allowing someone to charge $30,000, they, they would keep that card under wraps. And if someone's going to see your insurance card, like, oh, man, you got to show cause. Do you want to see my insurance card? i got to see your ID. But people don't realize that, that this is what they're letting go of. So if an emergency room gets a hold of your insurance card, and they start swiping it and swiping it and swiping it and running up all these charges, then what's going to happen is your, your, your insurance company will actually contact you and tell you, Hey, we get this $33,000 bill, 20% of it, which is $6,000, you've got to pay. And then your insurance company cooperates with the hospital. Any information that you need to get tracked or traced or billed or dinged or whatever, you know, you, you just got this talent on your back that you're never going to get rid of. So that's one piece that you're letting yourself in for. All these tests and drugs are not harmless. And so many of them, we create more side effects and more problems. The other thing that I've noticed uh, when I was in medical practice was it always had these things, these uh, resuscitations. And we call them a code, COVE, which means when a person's heart would stop uh, beating, these do all these heroic things to get their heart started again. And generally, uh, once you start pumping the person full of drugs, it's a pretty bad prognostic sign. Why? Because the person's pumped full of all these drugs, there's not any blood tests ever being done. And they're just one ampule after another. And I expressed my head, so this doesn't make any sense. How can you give someone one, two, three ampules of bicarb, bicarbonate, sodium bicarbonate, heavily alkalizing agent, when you're not even checking their blood pH, you don't even know what their pH is. And so a lot of these things like this can happen in the emergency room. Then we have the intensive care unit, again, which is, which is very, very uh, invasive. And so we've also got the emergency room as a revenue generator in terms of filling those hospital beds. Now, the other thing the emergency room does is the emergency room staff has instructions as to how to identify potential organ donors. This is a serious hazard. There's been nothing of a conflict of interest. And if you look at my show, What's a Body Worth? It takes you through the step explaining that a healthy body, in other words, a heartbeat, is worth $11.3 million in transplantable parts. That's how much revenue is generated in the healthcare industry to perform the various transplants. That's a lot of money. And so to go to an emergency room for trauma, like say a car accident, fender vendor, and you've got the back of your uh, license signs, oh yeah, I'd like to donate parts. Think about it. You're in a car accident, fender vendor, and they're drawing blood. Like, excuse me, why are you drawing my blood? Uh, clearly, I might need a little splint, no neck splint, and I can go home. Like, um, well, just, just, just a routine thing. No, it's not. You're typing cost for me to see if you're a donor. <laughs> so, this is a serious, serious, treacherous uh, problem. There was a case in Syracuse, New York, where someone came into the emergency room with an overdose. You know, apparently she typed and crossed out pretty well. 
They told her parents, hey, she's dead, sign here. And they took on the surgery, and she woke up. She woke up, and so they didn't harvest her organs. This is another piece of treachery for um, going to the, to the emergency room. My husband, uh, in a prior life, was a police officer. And he had this case where a guy committed a crime, and the guy had a pretty minor injury, uh, maybe a laceration. So he took the guy to the hospital, and um, I guess his shift changed or whatever. So he had to leave, and someone else supervised uh, the suspect. Well, then he finds out the suspect died, and his organs have been transplanted. Thank God the organs were gone. And finally, the guy has been seeing that sick all these years. All these years, he's wondering about that. Didn't seem right. Didn't seem right. Then, of course, he met me. He's like, ah, now we understand. So the emergency room is not the place to go, especially, especially for a car accident. If you can get up and walk away from a car accident, you should. And the back of your license, which says donor, don't sign it. Bad idea. Puts you in a very, very, very bad way. So we've explained how the emergency room is police, especially now with Obamacare. It's and they're taking off the floor. The, the bills are skyrocketing. The amount for the uh, individual to pay is skyrocketing. When you register and sign the emergency room, you're basically signing away what could be easily uh, six to sixteen thousand dollars. And you need to ask yourself, do you really feel sick enough to be admitted to the hospital? Don't feel sick enough to be admitted to the hospital. Don't even go to the emergency room, whatever the problem may be. Um, so one, you've got the financial loss. Two, you've got the loss of really your body, your health, and your limbs. Those are two big, two big reasons not to go to the emergency room. So what should you do? Well, first thing to do is ask yourself, could this wait till morning? And if you can wait till morning, won't wait till morning. Chances are, in the morning, when the sun rises, you're able to reconsider this, you may decide, you know what? It's really doing pretty well here. I don't think I need to go to the emergency room. So that's number one. Ask yourself, can you wait till morning? If you can wait till morning, let it wait till morning. Second, if you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about this. On the fence. Have a glass of water while you're on the fence. If you have a stroke in progress, or even a heart attack in progress, the glass of water will stop it. Yep. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Don't need to pop an aspirin on this one. So drink a glass of water. What's a glass of water? This is a good question. The glass of water is 12 to 16 ounces. So in other words, 8 ounces of water does not qualify. So 12 to 16 ounces of water, go ahead and drink it. And then see how you feel. If you're feeling better, then guess what? Keep track of how you feel and keep drinking uh, a glass of a glass of water until you feel perfectly fine. And then you're done. Just go right to bed. At least 80% of all illnesses are simply dehydration. Just simply dehydration. Now there's exceptions up to 20%. But if you're in the 80%, what the heck? Why not try a glass of water? Then, if you can't wait till morning, a glass of water is not going to help. The next question is, can I handle this myself? Can I handle this myself? The answer is going to be yes or no. Let's just say the answer is yes. Yes, you can apply direct pressure and stop the bleeding. Yes, you can put an ice pack on your head, mustard on your upper lip, and stop the headache. There's all these things you can do. You say, yes, I can do this. I'm going to go do it. Take care of it. Okay. Let's say you can't take care of it. The next question to ask yourself is, who do I know? What personal friend or relative of mine can I call that would help me? And this happened to me one night. I was, my niece was 13 years old, and her father was very proud. They bought this wonderful gas barbecue pit. And she decided to lean over the gas pit, and her brother with it, and it exploded, burning up her face. So what did he do? He said, who can I call? Okay, I'll call Jennifer. He called me, even though I was a medical doctor. I went out there, took a look at her face. She was awful. It was really awful. Uh, ran back to my office, got an aloe plant, sliced the aloe leaves, laid them right over the bug, put an ice pack on top of that, 
And because I was a doctor, I could write a script for Tylenol and Codeine, which I did, and gave her a little bit of that so she could uh, calm herself down. And it's now uh, 15 years after the injury, and you can't even tell there's no scar at all on her face. Had they taken her to the emergency room, she would have sat there, sat there, sat there. It would have done nothing. But it would have scarred up, and then the surgeon would have made a career out of her face. So a lot of the protocols in the emergency room are written to permit the person to deteriorate to the point where they will be absolutely desperate and uh, basically begging for uh, intervention. So first question, can I wait till morning? Second question, the second thing, third thing, can I solve this? And next is your phone call I can make. Who can I call? Who can I call? I don't care who you are out there, there's somebody you can call. There's a grandmother, there's a neighbor, somebody you can call. I had one client, uh, she called the neighbor over. So the neighbor came over and said, I don't know what to do. She had uh, passed out. And so she came to enough to call a neighbor. The neighbor came over, the neighbor was nowhere to know. There she was passed out on the couch. She was barely conscious. Uh, she could talk a little bit, but she really couldn't do anything. So she was an ongoing client of mine, and so uh, she called me and over the phone. I told her what to do, revived her. She didn't have to go to the emergency room. Oh, her neighbor just said, oh, honey, you've had a stroke. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. But by morning, she was perfectly healthy and in excellent shape. And just knowing what to do, knowing what to do. Or being able to call, make a phone call. That's very important, make a phone call. So that's what you've got to do. But whatever you do, the emergency room is not the answer. Certainly not for, again, this is my personal opinion, not for heart attacks, not for strokes, and not for uh, lacerations or, uh, or trauma. It's, it's, not, it's just not the place. You're going to end up being a premature organ donor. All right. It is time for questions. Oh, I'm having a webinar this Thursday. I'm going to talk to people about how to avoid the emergency room. I'm going to talk about many of the more frequent reasons people go to the emergency room and what to do instead. If people have a question, you can click the little question piece, and I'm going to go more beyond over to the chat room. Oh, where's the chat room? There we go. <laughs> Can I go out with you just ask when you've done that? Okay. I do. Okay. Dr. Daniel, what kind of support do you have to help people ease themselves away from doctors and hospitals and the medical industrial complex? Okay. So I have. Um, Often, people can save up their questions and ask all their questions. Contrary to popular opinion, emergency room visits do not just happen. No, 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 no. Most people have something festering or small things they haven't really attended to. It's usually for several weeks leading up to it. So, um, office hours value is $250 a month. They're now on sale for $49.95 a month. And one introductory price. So for one dollar, you can get one month of office hours, experience the value of office hours, experience the peace of mind, and see if you like it. That's what $8,995 a month. <laughs> okay. So what if you need stitches? Dr. Dan's, what should you do? Stitches are almost never needed. There's two strategies. One is you could uh, get butterflies. It's a type of uh, tape, actually, that's available at your pharmacy for about $2.50. The next thing, which I like much, much better, is an alloy swanny side down, take it down with uh, duct tape. That does is, unlike the uh, steri strips, which just hold the edges together, the alloy causes a uh, five-inch incision to literally shrink down to a one or two inch incision and it heals without any um, attraction to get from your doctor's uh, sutures, for example. And it also gets rid of infection. So I like the alloy because 
It allows your body to shrink the whole wound size down while making new skin and give the best cosmetic results. Okay, let's see here. We only have five minutes, so you have to be very concise with your questions. Hi, you're on the air. You're naming a question, please. Yes, I wanted to know if there's uh, an alternative to getting the uh, locally grown vegetables and what are some of your uh, suggestions if I'm kind of stuck with going to a grocery store to shop? Okay, so what you should do is uh, enter your zip code into your um, browser window. Enter the word, mm-hmm. the letters, capital C, capital S, capital A, space. Then your zip code into your browser. And what will come up is places in your area that get together locally grown produce for purchase by, by customers. Uh, a group, this is a group that works directly with farmers, and almost every zip code in America has that. Okay, I appreciate it. Yeah, food search. Okay, great. All right, thank you. Thanks. I have a a question, Doctor. Uh I wanted to know, yes, what do you think about latex mattresses? Um, I'm recovering from a herniated um, um, disc, and I'm using the turpentine, and I'm really enjoying that. But I just wanted to know, do you think that's a wise investment, a latex mattress that's supposed to be uh, natural? No, I tell you why I don't. Uh, Because most of them are shit-packed in formaldehyde. And trying to get the odor out of them is just, uh, it's a big big job. And so... I think if you want to spend money, and of course you don't end up spending money, but uh, you could go for a cotton, organic cotton mattress. They're making those now. And they actually have the old-fashioned um, springs in them with the cotton, everything natural. Are you trying to escape from chemicals? Is that what you're trying to avoid? I was trying to avoid chemicals and really just something that was supposed to be good to um, be good for my foundation to help my body rejuvenate. That's what I was really hoping for. Just, I've had uh, air mattresses. No. I've had, you know, I'm just trying to get the best mattress for a person who wants to have better um, foundation movement of my joints. No, there's no such mattress. You have to try them out and see which one you like. Um, different people have different preferences. And, and I've really researched this because I said, okay, I want the best mattress. I don't care how much it costs, blah, blah, blah. And I don't care what mattress you research no more than 75% of people use it are happy. Mm-hmm. So for you personally, what might be the most popular mattress might not be what makes the most sense for you. So you just have to take uh, the time and the energy to research that. Okay, another question here. Hi, you're on the air. You name any questions? Okay. Let's go to the chat room. I'm telling you, the chat room is calling for good questions. Yes, here we are. 